0: Hello and welcome to The Great Books Podcast. Today we'll talk about A Man for All Seasons by Robert Bolt. I'm your host, John J. Miller of National Review, and you're listening to a production of National Review. Our guest is Bethel McGrew, a journalist and essayist. Her Substack newsletter is called Further Up, whose tagline is Notes from a Christian Humanist. She joins us by Zoom as we record from Hillsdale College's campus radio station WRFH in Michigan. Bethel, welcome to The Great Books Podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me, John. It's a pleasure.
0: Why is A Man for All Seasons by Robert Bolt a great book?
1: This is one of the great modern English plays by one of the great English writers for stage and screen. It was one of Bolt's very first successful works, and I think it's fair to say it remains his most celebrated Although he would go on to establish himself chiefly with screenplays, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, The Mission, Dr. Zhivago. At one time, he was actually the highest paid screenwriter in Hollywood. But this play stands out, really head and shoulders in his corpus, it stands out for its economy, the genius of its prose, the way that it takes a complex piece of church history and it turns it into really a disarmingly simple story, a study in moral courage. It's a period piece, but it feels completely fresh, it feels universal. And the man at the heart of the story, Thomas More, is a completely riveting character. This man who was willing to die simply because, to quote from Bolt's preface to the play, he wouldn't put his hand on an old black book and tell an ordinary white lie. So it's a classic story of conscience and a story that clearly haunted Bolt personally. We know that already in grammar school, he was fascinated by More. So this is kind of a lifelong obsession for him. So I think in the end, what makes it so potent is the sense that it's not just about more in his conscience. It's Bolt examining his own conscience and in turn inviting us to examine ours.
0: We're going to talk about all that what this play says, the amazing character at the center of it, the script and stage versions, but also the movie versions because there were two. One of them is very famous, the other less famous, but also interesting. Let's start with how the play, the stage play, actually begins. There's a character called the common man with a capital C and a capital M the common man. And this is different from the opening of the famous movie, the play, then the the, the opening words spoken by the common man on stage, the line is this quote, it is perverse to start a play made up of Kings and Cardinals and speaking costumes and intellectuals with embroidered mouths with me unquote. Bethel, who is this guy, and what's his role on stage?
1: This guy is every man, quite literally, and that's what the word common means. It doesn't mean that he's low status. It means that he contains that which is common to us all from Bolt's preface. So he hangs the frame. He's our narrator, but he narrates in character, or rather in characters, plural, multiple minor roles that he takes on throughout the play, and so each time he switches characters, he actually changes costumes in front of the audience and explains who he's going to play next. So he starts off as Moore's household steward, Matthew, but next time we see him, he might be a boatman, he might be a publican uh, or a jailer. And finally, he's actually the executioner who chops off Moore's head. So he's an uncomfortable figure, but his role is to hold up a mirror to the audience because we have our roles to play in the play of life. We have our choices to make. And we would all like to think that we'd be just like Thomas Moore we'd be heroic, we'd have integrity, we wouldn't give in. But the reality is we might look a little more like the common man. And so just like C.S. Lewis writes in his essay, The World's Last Night, we play these roles, not knowing at the end how significant or insignificant they are, but we play them glibly or casually at our own risk.
0: Before we dive in then to the meat of the play and Thomas More, this character, let's do a little history lesson. Bethel, will remind us about the historical backdrop here. This is a clash, this play, this story of a clash between Thomas More and King Henry VIII over the king's divorce, his desire for a divorce, from Catherine of Aragon. What do people need to know going into the play?
1: Yes, so More was a Catholic statesman, a lawyer, a social philosopher, Uh, A renaissance man in the the literal sense of the word, uh, a humanist, a patron of the arts. So he's born in 1478, and the king executes him in 1535. And as you say, uh, the inciting event is the king's desire to have his marriage from Catherine annulled because she hasn't produced him a male heir, and he's infatuated with Anne Boleyn. So he tries to use the the rather thin excuse that Catherine was his brother's widow— So, you know, he sort of made a great show of piety that, oh, my marriage was really illegitimate, so he he wanted the Pope to annul it, Pope Clement VII. So the Pope refused to do this, and this launched a chain reaction that would ultimately, strangely, birth the Church of England. And so Thomas More was caught in the middle of this historic shift because not only was he a statesman, he was personally close to the king. Uh, He knew the king from his boyhood, helped to shape his education, including his theological education. And so it really mattered deeply to the king that he had Moore's personal blessing. And so when Moore refused to provide it, he ultimately signed his own death warrant.
0: So that's the Thomas Moore of history. Who's the Thomas Moore, the character in A Man for All Seasons?
1: Thomas Moore, the character, it's interesting to compare and contrast with the Thomas More of history. because we are seeing him through the lens of Robert Bolt, who's a, a mid-20th century uh, atheist, agnostic, existentialist playwright. So the argument has been made uh, that Bolt kind of recreated more in his own image as uh, a 20th century modern existentialist hero, when this this isn't quite true to the more of history. So the more of the play is, uh, is very intensely focused on his individual conscience and the fact that this this is what he personally believes and he's willing to go up against the establishment no matter what the cost.
0: You called him an existentialist hero. This is a term we hear sometimes, but what does it actually mean? What is existentialism and is that a good way to think about this character?
1: So existentialism is not the easiest idea to pin down, but It's a school of philosophy, including names like Kierkegaard, Jean-Paul Sartre, Albert Camus. It originates the 19th century that sort of flowers in the mid-20th century, just where Bolt is coming into his own as a thinker and a writer. Sartre described it as the attempt to draw all the consequences from a position of consistent atheism. But if you look back to somebody like Kierkegaard, he's working out something like the beginnings of it in a Christian frame. And so maybe the more fundamental way to encapsulate the idea would be Sartre's idea that existence precedes essence. And so, in other words, the individual shapes himself simply by existing. And this is what gives him his true essence, something that nobody else can impose upon him. It's individual man who creates his own values, determines his own meaning, charts his own destiny. And so, this is the stream that Bolt is drinking from. And really, it kind of runs through all of his work from this play to Wards of Arabia to The Mission. You could trace this running theme of the individual intention with uh, prevailing society.
0: And so does that make the Thomas More on stage, the character in the play, fundamentally different from the Thomas More of history?
1: You know, I think in some ways, with, with certain lines, it does. I mean, there's a line where he's he's talking about the doctrine of the Pope's apostolic succession and The play more literally says what matters to me is not whether it's true or not, but that I believe it to be true, or rather not that I believe it, but that I believe it. And that's something you could never picture the historical Thomas More saying. You could never picture him say that it doesn't matter whether or not it's true, it just matters that I believe it. You know, that's a very 20th century thing for him to say. So I think you can kind of put your finger on specific places where you're like, okay, this is more sock puppeting for Bolt, essentially, not the real More. And you could also say that the, the historical Moore, so far from seeing himself as anti-establishment, saw himself as standing with the establishment, standing with the established church. And it's Henry who was the uh, the upstart rebel. But having said all that, I think you could you could say there's there's a little bit of a, a both and at work. So yes, Moore did stand with the established church, but at the same time, he he was in very real danger of having his head chopped off by the non-establishment guy who just happened to be the king. I think the historical more still can be held up, if not as an existentialist of the 20th century sense. He is a legitimate icon of, of conscience, of individual integrity, uh, against an authority structure that wields the power of the sword. Uh, he's a man who has, in Bolt's words, an adamantine sense of his own self.
0: And that's what makes him such a compelling character, and we should be careful to point out this is, this is a really good play, and it's easy to follow, and we don't want to get bogged down in what is existentialism because it's a really fun play to watch, and it deals with big issues and has larger-than-life characters, and it's fun to follow. It's easy to follow. This is a message from our friends at American Habits from the State Policy Network, We the People. Do you ever think about what that means and what happened to it? We the people certainly did not mean an imperial city full of unelected bureaucrats deciding everything from kindergarten curricula to nursing home funding formulas. We the people mean self-government, a free people deciding most things in their families and communities and delegating some authority to their towns and states while passing along just a small amount of that power to the national government. How did things get so upside down? At American Habits, we tell stories of real people with real solutions, all working to restore federalism and self-government. If you're a public official, come get involved. If you're a citizen, come and see the new standard for American leadership. No matter who you are, come help us renew the forgotten but not lost habit of American self-government. Visit AmericanHabits.org to learn more. That's American Habits. Let's introduce another key character that really helps the story move along. That's a figure called Richard Rich. He's kind of a young man on the make. Who is he? How does he connect with Moore? And what is his role in the story on stage?
1: Um, So Rich, like most of these characters, is a historical character, lightly fictionalized. Um, So we meet him as, as you say, an ambitious young man in Moore's social circle who feels like he hasn't really arrived yet. Uh, So he's looking for a patron, he's looking for a sinecure. And Moore is sort of gently trying to steer him away from corruption because he senses that Rich is not uh, morally the strongest character. And so Moore is trying to steer him towards a quiet life as a teacher. Rich takes this as an insult, but Moore intends it as a compliment. One of my favorite exchanges Moore says, why not be a teacher? You would be a fine teacher, perhaps a great one. And if I was, Richard asks, who would know it? Well, you, your pupils, your friends, God, not a bad public that. And so uh, Rich is not going to take this path. He's going to climb the ladder. He will do whatever it takes to climb the ladder, even if it means uh, betraying Thomas Moore. And so at the end, he allows himself to be corrupted by the villain of our, our piece, Thomas Cromwell.
0: And so it's a slow corruption that, that culminates right. culminates in in perjury. and you mentioned our principal villain, Thomas Cromwell a bunch of Thomases in this play <laughs> but who is yes. who is Thomas Cromwell?
1: Thomas Cromwell is the main villain. He's Henry VIII's chief minister and he spearheads Moore's capture, trial and execution. Like Moore, he's also a lawyer and so he's the perfect dark foil for more. And their scenes together really crackle because you can sense that they're two sides of the same coin. They, they have their minds work in a similar way. So they're kind of circling around each other and exchanging jabs. And they have this, this uh, cleverness and wiliness that defines their trade. But Cromwell is choosing to apply it with total ruthless cynicism. And he takes Richard Rich under his wing and promises Rich all of the things that rich wants so then it's it's through him that rich betrays more
0: and then of course there's king henry the eighth and in the play he's not the fat guy that he's gonna become and we we have this mental image of of that henry the eighth this is a young and vigorous man
1: yes he's young he's vigorous he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer and you especially feel this in his scenes with more who's quite brilliant you sense that the king is this as you say very vigorous robust but but dangerous so you know he he laughs a lot he smiles a lot Moore is his good friend but the king wants something from Moore, and he grows impatient the longer that Moore delays giving it to him
0: now tell us about the title of the play a man for all seasons where does it come from that phrase and what does it mean
1: The phrase comes from one of Moore's own contemporaries, Robert Whittington. Let me pull up the, try to pull up the epigraph here. Moore is a man of an angel's wit and singular learning. I know not his fellow, for where is the man of that gentleness, lowliness, and affability? And as time requireth a man of marvelous mirth and pastimes, and sometimes of as sad gravity, a man for all seasons. And so Moore can be joyful, playful, witty, but also he has a melancholy to him. He can be very grave, very serious when the moment requires it.
0: Now, there's a second epigraph at the start of A Man for All Seasons. And what I mean by this is if you buy a book, The Man for All Seasons, basically the script of the play, there are these two epigraphs. One is from Robert Whittington that mentions A Man for All Seasons. The second in my copy is from Samuel Johnson, So it's from the 1700s. And he says this of Thomas More. He was the person of the greatest virtue these islands ever produced. Bethel, do you agree with that? Was he the person of the greatest virtue, or at least is he in the running for that kind of a claim?
1: This is a hyperbole, of course. I think the question becomes interesting if you narrow down the reference class. So you could ask, Was he the most virtuous statesman of his time, the most virtuous Catholic, the most virtuous Christian? And I think, yes, certainly he's in the running for all of those titles. Certainly you can say he had far more virtue than many, if not most, of his peers, uh, the ones who put their hand on the book and told the ordinary white lie. Now, there is something we haven't brought up yet, which is his his rather ruthless persecution of some of the first uh, Protestants, heretics in his eyes. So to us Looking back, this is this is sort of hard to get past. But then we have to remind ourselves that virtually every statesman, Protestant or Catholic, was all too happy to hound heretics in Moore's day. I mean that was just sort of taken for granted. So if you look at him as a man of his time, and you sort of adjust the reference class, then yes, I would say the epigraph is is not unreasonable uh, for all that it's a little bit rhetorically hyperbolic.
0: Now you mentioned the faith or maybe lack of faith of the author, Robert Bolt. And the preface to A Man for All Seasons, and it's a really good preface, everybody should read it. He does say, quote, I am not a Catholic, nor even in the meaningful sense of the word, a Christian. And when I read those words, that surprised me, because this is a play that a lot of Christians admire, Catholics who really admire Thomas More, anybody who admires Thomas More, Sometimes think of this maybe not as a Christian play, but certainly as sympathetic to Christianity, interested in it, and so forth. Help us sort this out, Bethel. What are we to make of Robert Bolt's statement here, his apparent beliefs, and what this play is about and who enjoys it?
1: It's a critic, literary critic, Kenneth Tynan, sort of put a finger on this in his review of the play. He says, You know, I don't know what Robert Bolt's faith or lack of faith is, but I rather suspect that he, he would admire more whether he thought that more was correct or not. Tynan was onto something there that Bolt himself explicitly elaborates on this in his preface. It's almost amusing because he says, I feel like I have to offer a kind of an apology, an explanation and an apology for why I'm taking a Catholic saint as my hero, even though I'm not a Catholic or even in the meaningful sense of the word a Christian, as you say. And so, you know, I think it goes back to that that line that Morris says, you know, what matters is that I believe it, specifically that I believe it. Bolt admired the fact that that Moore knew exactly who he was. He knew exactly what he believed, and he was going to stand on that, come that, come what may. He wasn't going to be budged. That that had a powerful attraction uh, to Bolt because it was what he had admired in the you know the different existentialist thinkers that he loved. But Bolt I- expresses this this interesting. Frustration. I, I guess you could say that we seem to struggle in in the modern West with uh, getting a sense of selfhood without, as he puts it, resort to magic. Uh, so there's a you know sort of a dismissive word for for religion in general. And he says, you know, this is what our best minds, our best thinkers, are going to have to keep keep working on, keep coming up with. But you know, in the meantime, it's it's ironic that his greatest play, his greatest work of literature, is Focused on a Catholic saint. So you know this raises this raises the the question, the possibility that, that Bolt is sort of dancing around and facing and not quite wanting to admitting that you you know maybe you can't ultimately take this kind of a stand consistently without grounding it in a transcendent faith.
0: Let's turn to the movie versions of A Man for All Seasons. There were two. One was from 1966, directly from the stage version, starring Paul Schofield, who played Thomas More on stage. And then here he is on screen. Also, Robert Shaw and Orson Welles were in that movie. And I'm going to guess a lot of our listeners, if they know this play, they know it because they've seen the movie, not because they've seen the stage play. There's also a 1988 film with Charlton Heston, of all people, playing Thomas More. But first of all, Bethel, what can the movies do that a stage play can? cannot do it seems like an obvious question but but what is in the movie that's not in the play
1: so there's a great line by the actor british actor dirk bogard that the camera can capture thought and with a play like this with characters like this characters who are so fiercely intelligent both both the hero and the villain it's wonderful to be able to see their thoughts that's what the film affords you that theater as a medium can't I think the film medium also really serves this script well, a script that's um, it's very subtle, it's very fine-grained, there's all kinds of nuances uh, in the ways the actors deliver their lines and the significant looks that they give, and the camera is able to get up close and capture all of that, and capture lines that are best delivered quietly, uh, without a need to project to the back row. I think that's mainly what the film serves. In terms of cinematic tools the film doesn't do a whole lot that you couldn't do on stage but there there are a couple of nice touches in that vein as well
0: now is there something a play can do that a movie cannot you get a sense of intimacy i suppose when you're in a theater with 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 live actors on stage but but can a play do something that a movie cannot do
1: that's really interesting so so you mentioned the 1988 version with charlton heston Um, it was made for tv but uh, feels much more like a play Feels stagier, the actors are just louder uh, and more open. It retains the common man. And I mean, I think the character of the common man is a great example of uh, something that really only works I mean, it works best in a theater context because this guy has an audience to talk to. Uh, You know, when he he breaks the fourth wall, he's not just on a soundstage, He's, uh, he's speaking to you, he's holding up a mirror. And so that's that's a great example of the, the kind of device that's unique to theater.
0: If you could watch only one of these movies, the 1966 version or the 1988 version, which would you choose and why?
1: I think if you had to watch only one, the 1966 really is the gold standard. It is less faithful to the play. And so, you know, I think if you, if you've read the play and you really love it and you want to see all of it kind of preserved, definitely have a look at the 1988 as well. But, um, I think that the, the, the performances, the direction, and some of the editing, too. I mean, I think certain lines of the play are actually slightly improved and sharpened. Bolt had a hand in adapting it uh, to the screen himself. Really do come to perfection in the 66 version. And it won a whole bunch of Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, I think, and Best Actor for Paul Schofield as more.
0: One of the differences between that movie version and the stage play is the execution. Because in the movie, the, the film ends on the chopping block. I mean, you hear the sound of the beheading, and then the screen goes black, and then and, and the movie's over, essentially. In the stage play, the version written by Robert Bull, the text that you can buy as a book nowadays, there's a little bit more.
1: There is a little bit more. And, you know, it's really staged with, uh, with quite overt passion parallels. So there's a little bit of a uh, Via Dolorosa. Women weeping, or or maybe jeering, You know, there's like a little bit of a crowd watching. Whereas in in the movie, there's hardly anybody there. So there, there's another example of um, you know the the power of of theater. Something that that I think works especially well on stage. There's a little bit of dialogue uh, between more different people. His daughter is actually there. His daughter Meg. So you know, she she runs up and he comforts her. So, yeah, a lot of different things going on. And then at the very end on stage, back to the common man, there were a couple of alternative endings that Bolt actually wrote. But the one that was performed most frequently was coming back full circle after the common man plays his role as executioner. He takes off the mask and addresses the audience one last time.
0: You mentioned at the top of the show that this is a period piece. In other words, it's set in the past, It's set in history times. Why do you think Bolt chose to do that? Is there something you can do with characters from the past that's harder to do if you're trying to set it in contemporary times?
1: Yes, Bolt actually explicitly talks about this uh, in his preface because this wasn't his first play. He His first play was called Flowering Cherry, which is uh, sort of a, a lesser version of Death of a Salesman. He's kind of self-deprecating about... These, these very early works, because he he says that he was trying to put these, you know, kind of grand speeches in the mouths of these contemporary characters. You know, they're, they're standing up and talking about what they stand for, but it all feels sort of overwrought and pretentious for a contemporary context. So, you know, as Bolt was thinking about what he wanted to write next, he sort of realized that the period piece was really the best vehicle for the kind of play he naturally wanted to write. So, you know, this, this is where everything sort of finds its, its natural place. It's so people are making grand speeches, but it was an age when people made grand speeches, so it works much more organically.
0: Bethel, how did you discover A Man for All Seasons? Was it because of the movie? Did you see it on stage? How did you come to know this play so well?
1: So I first came to know it uh, studying literature with my mom in high school, she came to know it because uh, she had a, a bit part in the production of the play in college. Her degree is in English literature, so when she homeschooled me, she uh, she really made sure that I would know my English canon. And this, in particular, was a play that she wanted to make sure I studied early and deeply. And it really had a profound effect on me. I don't remember exactly how old I was, I think it was maybe 14 or 15, um, it's definitely something. I would point back to as a a work that shaped me. You know, people ask, name five works that shaped you. This consistently goes on my list.
0: You write a lot about literature and culture in your Substack newsletter, which is called Further Up, and its, its tagline is Notes from a Christian Humanist. What is your Substack newsletter? What are you trying to do with it? Who is it for? How can listeners sign up for it?
1: great question. So the, I mean, the title further up is kind of a nod to C.S. Lewis, and my my logo is the the lamppost in the woods. So, you know, I think I, I'm sort of self-consciously following the steps of writers like Lewis or writers like Dorothy Sayers. And, you know, Christian humanists, people sometimes ask me, well, what, what is a Christian humanist? How can you be a Christian and a humanist? Perfect question for this context, because I think, um, you know, Thomas More historically is a, a great example of a Christian humanist. And so I, I'm trying to Steal humanism back, in a sense. I, I try to sort of point out that Christianity is the the true humanism. So, who who is my writing for? Um, you know, it's 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 for everybody. I have an eclectic readership: Christians, non-Christians, all kinds of people. Tell me that um, I help kind of illuminate things for them. I help illuminate the culture, faith, religion, and you know, I, I try to I try to see the world with with a a tenderness, but also in honesty, I think I I carry the tragic vision as Thomas Sowell called it that, you know, sometimes there, there are no solutions, but you know, I always try to kind of point further up as the, as the title says.
0: And one more question, what's the case for reading a man for all seasons today, or maybe what's the Christian humanist case for paying attention to this play and or movie?
1: Fundamentally, this this is a play about identity, uh, where we find it, how we ground it, what shapes it for better or for worse. And these are timeless questions. They're universal. These characters are universal. Uh, if you live long enough, you're going to meet a Cromwell. You're going to meet a Richard Rich. You'll meet that guy who doesn't know how to define himself without comparing himself to other people. Um, but when you do meet someone like a Thomas More, if you're fortunate enough to meet a Thomas More, somebody who won't give in, somebody who has that sense of his own self, the chances are good that he's going to have his selfhood grounded in his faith. You know, he's going to have his his humanism grounded in Christianity. And this is something I, I've heard the, the journalist, Barry Weiss, has observed. She's not a Christian herself, but she says that when she looks through history, consistently she sees this, that the, the, you know, the people who stand up against tyranny, who stand up in the service of conscience and integrity, they share this in common. They seem to draw their strength from their faith. And, you know, that's, that's, what, that's what Bolt is wrestling with. And um, as I look around today, I see a number of contemporary thinkers wrestling with the same questions, the same questions that Bolt is asking. I would mention in particular the, the thinker Jordan Peterson, who when he came on the scene, it really set me back to Bolt because I heard so many echoes of, of Bolt in his rhetoric. It's, you know, similarly, these are men who they can't make the leap of faith but they're perpetually haunted and fascinated by people who can. So I think if you want to understand a figure like Peterson today, if you want to understand the anxious age in which his voice has emerged, an age in which people increasingly struggle to find their identity, then there's no better time to read this play.
0: Bethel McGrew, thanks so much for joining us and telling us all about A Man for All Seasons by Robert Bolt.
1: Thank you so much, John.
0: You just listened to the Great Books Podcast, a production of national review. Please subscribe to the Great Books Podcast and leave reviews of the show. That helps us keep this podcast going. Some of your ideas for future episodes, you can reach me through my website at haymiller.com. On Twitter, my handle is at haymiller. And last of all, special thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back in 2024 with a new episode of the Great Books Podcast.